Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Immigrations Podcast. Today, we have Saba as our guest. Saba is a dreamer, scientist, activist, and entrepreneur, and a lifelong student. Born in Pakistan, she moved to Fort Worth, Texas when she was 11. Her immigration journey has been documented in the award-winning PBS documentary called Dream With Me. She is most proud of her work with the Immigrants Rising when she served as an entrepreneurship fellow and helped build resources that empower undocumented entrepreneurs to become financially independent. She's passionate about movement building, finding tangible ways to help undocumented youth. She holds bachelor's and master's degree in mathematics and a PhD in mathematical biology from Texas University. And she's a data scientist at Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, working at the intersection of infectious disease and computational biology. Saba lives with her partner in San Francisco, where she actively volunteers in the community. She is proud to serve as a mentor to young STEM entrepreneurs and as a community leader fighting for immigration reform at NACASAC, National Korean American Service and Education and Consortium, and as a board member for the Center for Asian Pacific American Women. Saba, thank you so much for joining in. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Appreciate it. And you know, like what I really admire about you is that you use your gift and talent to help other people and you have accomplished so much at a such young age and you still have a lot of drive and passion to serve. And I'm sure a lot of our audience uh, who are hearing right now will be very interested in learning more about how do you stay motivated, especially when you have to go through a lot of different challenges and issues like immigration status. But before that, you know, I would love for you to share your immigration journey and how did you first got connected to the immigrants movement? Yeah, um, so my journey, as you mentioned in the bio, um, I was born in Pakistan in Karachi and I lived in Lahore, which is uh, uh, Karachi is a city of about 20 million, maybe more people. Lahore, a city of about 13 million plus people. Um, so large cities, I, I grew up um, there and that's that's where I spend a lot of my childhood. Um, so I have all of my childhood memories are, are from there. Um, and I came to the US when I was eight actually first to visit my grandparents who'd been living here since late 80s, early 90s and my aunts, uncle, um, uncles, cousins, a lot of family was here in, in Texas uh, or there in Texas, because right now I'm in San Francisco. Um, and uh, yeah, so I visited uh, when I was eight and then went back um, and then finally moved when I was almost 12, um, mainly to reunite with, uh, with uh, my grandparents, my mom's parents. Um, unfortunately, as we were moving, uh, my grandfather, he passed away and he was our petitioner. And he petitioned my mom and all of us through, through my mom. Um, and we were very, very close to getting our um, green cards. We were actually like, you know, we had the approval. We had to wait um, maybe a couple more years to do our um, interview at the embassy um, in Pakistan. And then we would have, we were, um, yeah, very close. Um, but we decided to make the leap to moving a little bit earlier because my, my grandfather was very ill. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so my dad, he worked for, for Lufthansa, the German Airlines, and he um, 
to Tanta Cargo. So we were very lucky in the sense that he was able to get my mom on a flight um, when she needed to come to see her parents when they you know, were sick or if anything was happening. So she would visit quite often. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, a couple of days before my grandfather passed away, she came to, she was able to get um, there right in time. And unfortunately he passed away. And a few weeks later, we, we uh, came to the U.S. and we, that was the time that we were actually moving. And uh, it, it became really difficult because we kept, you know, renewing our visas. We kept trying to figure out if there was a way we could take our petition that was basically dying or was already dead because the petitioner was dead um, and find a way to either get back in some sort of line or, I don't know, do something. And I was very young. I was like 12 at that time. And um, I remember being like between 12 and 14 years of age, I was just like looking up, you know, INS, which I think it was called that, <laughs> right? Immigration I, I, and Nationalization. IRS, I believe. No, no, no. Because remember well, USCIS before it became USCIS? It was, I, was yeah. Before it was INS? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Or there, there's an agency named INS that I remember. That's right, um, yeah. You know, and uh, I just remember reading a bunch of stuff like, okay, what do we do? Who do we talk to? What do we like, you know, and I was just, you know, in sixth grade and like having to do all this homework kind of like, dang, you know, I grew up pretty fast around that time. Um, and yeah, because we had to find a way to like, you know, make it work and find a, find a way to get good attorneys or or, um, you know, find good legal help, which we really didn't have, honestly. And I wonder if we went back in time, I wonder if we had really sought out some clever, innovative, legal, good ways to fix our situation. I think we could have, but um, we did not have those resources. We were in Fort Worth, Texas. We drove to Houston. We tried to figure out like, who can we talk to? Do we need to go back to Pakistan and then come that would, maybe make us have that 10-year bar. I mean, it was all sorts of difficulties. And um, yeah, currently the, the way it goes is that if you're in the US and you're, let's say you're visiting, which we were on visas, um, and you have a current petition and you're close to getting the, your green card, but you haven't gotten it yet, um, I guess if your petitioner dies, your petition also dies. And there's no, um, yeah, there's no way right now, I don't think, to like fix that situation. Maybe like, maybe USCIS could have some rules that are like, hey, you can go back in line by two more years or pay this much or whatever. But anyway, so that uh, after a couple of years of trying to figure out what to do with our status, we ended up becoming undocumented. And it was a really tough decision, you know, because back in Pakistan around that time, it was, um, not good conditions. Um, the economy was just tanking. I mean, there's a lot of bad things going on. Um, and, you know, my, my parents had to make the difficult decision to continue to stay here so that we could at least pursue our education, um, which was really, really important. And it was a top priority for my dad and, and for my mom. So um, we decided to stay. And uh, uh, yeah, and, you know, went through elementary a little bit of elementary middle high school everything in in north texas and fort worth then went to texas tech for all my degrees um 
And yeah, that's where I was compelled by some of my mentors and um, friends to really share, um, you know, my undocu story. And I was like, why should I, why should I share that? Like, that's, I don't know anybody else who's undocumented. I, I knew like literally zero people who were undocumented, um, mm. whether it be, you know, uh, Latinos, APIs, I mean, no, I didn't know anybody, um, you know, and so the lack of community that I felt was um, definitely quite isolating, not just, you know, for me, I was just a young kid, but, you know, for our whole family. Um, yeah, so that's our quick little background on how we came, why we came, and why we stayed, and, um, you know, the difficulties and hurdles, which, you could go on about on and on about and you know never never ending <laughs> yeah that's very interesting i i didn't know about uh when um when petitioners uh pass away and uh, after that like that petition just kind of fall apart that's um something that i just learned about so after you just kind of fell out of the status, you became undocumented. And um, from how long uh, from that period to you received and DACA and uh, during that time, um, you know, what really like inspired you to kind of share your um, story when you don't need to do so? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, those are good questions. Yeah, I didn't really get into about the, the part where, you know, DACA came around. <laughs> That was life changing. I mean, that was uh, June twelfth. Uh, uh, was June fifteenth, twenty twelve. And uh, I remember that day. I was a freshman in undergrad, and I remember learning about it. And I was like, "What? There's gonna be a way for us to get out of this?" Like, because <laughs> first year in college, you know, was really really tough. Because I, I like had no. No, as you know very well, there was no way for us and docu young young people who had no status to like find a way to work or to you know um, support themselves, support ourselves. Um, right. So it was very harrowing. It was very um, almost depressing, and that was a word that I never uh, really. It wasn't part of my vocab really. I, I was a mm. I was a student athlete. I was super. Um, high energy, super motivated, um, you know, everything was possible if we worked hard and we'd already worked hard so much and sacrificed and I just, you know, top of my class and never wanted to, you know, settle down and like, you know, um, take no as an answer. Like there's got to be a solution. And uh, that's what happened when it came to going to college. Like, I, you know, fully undocumented. I didn't even know if, if it was possible to, to pursue higher education. And I learned uh, actually through um, E4FC, which is now Immigrants Rising, Educators for Fair, Fair Consideration, that was their previous name, um, learned through their website that as a Texas resident, due to the Texas Dream Act signed by Rick Perry back in 01, um, we could uh, qualify as Texas residents if we went to high school there, and thus we could go to college and pay in-state tuition rates, which absolutely made total sense, right? Because mm. we've been school children in Texas schools for our whole lives, basically, right? And that's the only home we know. Um, why should we be considered out of state all of a sudden right. trying to go to college? 
anyway, I learned that, and um, that was information that, unfortunately, my two older sisters didn't have. And it really cost them quite a few years in terms of trying to gain an education and advisors and anybody you see at, you know, a community college or a high school, a lot of them don't know this information. So they really can't guide you. Um, so you end up losing a lot of money and a lot of, you know, uh, mental strength, really, um, to because you're trying to go to college and you can't. Um, so I, I was able to go to college uh, after I learned this and I called up Texas Tech and I was in their honors college and they were like, hey, you know, you don't have a social. Um, that's OK. We'll use your student ID number. And, you know, so we, we worked out everything. And um, I just remember that first year being very tough because there was really no way that, you know, we could work legally and and pay our bills and that's all we wanted to do is pay taxes pay bills um give back to the economy like we've always wanted to um and it was not possible until daca came around and um actually right before uh three four months before daca was announced in february of 2012 unfortunately we had um an ice case that started um, oh, wow. because of the fact that uh, somebody reported us and oh whoa so we had and do you know who or like we what? have an idea oh. but yeah we're, we're you know they don't really tell you that information but we, we kind of had an idea but anyway so we um uh you know that's the thing you dread your entire life wow. right I mean, it, what's the i mean that's a very like you know what's like your initial reaction when you kind of hear that notification, especially coming from ICE, right? Like sometimes, you know, yeah. you know, like it's it's very interesting, right? Like sometimes, like like I know like my situation, and sometimes I even forget that I'm my uh, immigration status is not fully, um, yeah. You know, I don't have paper, right? And then, but once you kind of hear things like that, oh man, like actually, like yeah. I'm still in limbo and there's a lot of potential risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With, with DACA, even, you know, even if you have DACA, as you do, it, you know very well that, um, you know, it's temporary and, you know, ICE can still find ways to uh, to try to deport you, even though that's what DACA was supposed to do is protect you from deportation. Um, uh, yeah, so basically, you know, that moment, and this is before DACA was announced, uh, when we found out about this news. Um, yeah, that was, yeah, that was one of the toughest things ever to to be able to um, make peace with, is that that was happening. Um, um, because, you know, that's something your whole undocumented life in America, you you know, you go by the rules as much as you can and like you do everything probably a lot better than most citizens, right? Like you, you work hard, go to school or you're working and giving, you know, still paying taxes some way or another. Um, right. You could prove that actually. Um, and you're always living a life in, in fear and constant fear. And then you know, when you find this news out, it's like the rug was pulled from under you and you're just, you know, you have nowhere to go. Um, you, you can't breathe all of a sudden. Um, 
that's kind of what it felt like. And I remember I was in school um, in college and I remember my sister calling me and uh, sharing that and was like, hey, like, where are you at right now? And I'm like, oh, I think I know where this is going. I'm like, you know, I'm on campus. And she was like, okay, well, you know, we need to talk to you and tell you what happened. And um, so basically when ICE came about, you know, my, my dad was very, very kind and very understanding um, and very welcoming actually uh, to the officers. And they were very shocked. They were like, oh, this is not a dangerous situation at all. You know, like right. they were like calling off the backups. They're like, oh, we're okay. And, you know, they kind of do this at like 4 a.m., you know. Um, and yeah, I wasn't there at, at, at home in Fort Worth. I was in Lubbock where Texas Tech is. And I, you know, um, so I wasn't, you know, there while it was happening. But yeah, so they just were like, okay, give us your passports. And, you know, this is what's happening. And um, you have to come in, uh, you know, this morning and come and get your biometrics and fingerprints and scans and eye scans and voice scans and literally everything. Um, and yeah, we'll process you basically is what they say. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I remember getting a call from an ICE officer while I was in, um, at school and, uh, I was like, and how old are you at the time? I was a freshman. It was towards the end of my freshman year in college. Okay. It was like 19. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, I was like, yeah, I'm in school. Like I'm in Lubbock. This is where I'm at. And they're like, Oh, we have a field office in Lubbock too. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I don't drive, you know that, right? Because I can't. Um, so it's not like I can just magically appear in Fort Worth that, you know, and then their offices in Dallas, the big one where they want you to go in and get processed. And they were actually like pretty like understanding. They were like, okay, well, when can you, when's the next time you're going to come home? And, you know, when can you come in? And um, I found a way to get back and do all the processing. And yeah, I mean, they, you basically, from the moment that you're under this administrative arrest, um, uh, from that moment on, you are under, basically under um, supervision. Um, through uh, a program called ISAP, which I don't know if it exists still or not, or if it's been renamed. DHS is a is very interesting, has all these different components. And a lot of times those components aren't talking to each other as much as mm. you think they do. But anyway, um, uh, we were put into the, the supervision um, uh, process just to make sure that you are not trying to run away, you're not trying to, um, you know, fly out somehow, you were, you know, just, you know, going to be reachable. Um, so, you know, they scan your, um, obviously everything, uh, you know, biometrically, your eyes, your fingerprints, everything, and then record your voice. You get these voice calls, um, automated voice calls where they make you repeat numbers wow. certain times in wow. the week. It's very, it's very crazy. Wow. And if you miss that call, like literally, if you miss that call, um, it's bad because they're going to come. And do you have to do it like on a regular basis or yeah. it's like a random? 
sometimes it was random, but a lot of times it was scheduled. But like, I mean, you could be like on campus taking a final exam, like on a Saturday, you know, for example, and you can't pick, you can't touch your phone because you shouldn't be touching your phone when taking an exam, you know? And um, yeah, it it got extremely, um, uh, I don't know, very, very, very irritating, but also extremely um, uh, sad, right? Because you have to constantly be on edge and you're constantly like being followed essentially um and you your location needs to be known you need to be near your phone and you need to pick it up if you get those calls and you need to be able to repeat those numbers because they want to scan your voice um for my mom who doesn't speak a whole lot of english that wasn't really super fair because anytime she was getting a call we need somebody needed to be with her sit her down on the dining table and when they and put it on speaker and then whatever number the the robot was saying my mom needed to repeat that and we would like write it down make sure that she's repeating the right way um it was it was harrowing it was crazy um so so yeah we went through that so they they do that basically um until you and, and even after but until you have your uh, court hearing, which is when the judge will decide basically if you get put on a plane or whatever, or or if you have any other remedies, then you get out of that process. Um, so our court hearing was exact, pretty much a year after um, the ICE situation started, um, which was February, 2012. By February, 2013, DACA had come about and first applications were being rolled out. Right. So our attorney was like, well, you can't deport her because she's applying for DACA. And I literally got saved by the bell. <laughs> like, wow. I, if DACA hadn't come about that year and and if the applications hadn't been rolling out, I, 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 I don't know where I'd be, you know, um, because, uh, yeah, I, I was just uh, I was just a kid. Um, and so, uh, so essentially DACA shield from uh, deportation. Yeah. So DACA, like literally, like, you know, in all of the literal ways in which it could help me, helped me in terms of wow. like, not just the ability to work legally and like, you know, be able to support myself, but the other part, which is the intangible part of protection from deportation that helped me like at the right time. Uh, wow it saved me from from having to to go back or be back in limbo or whatever or i don't know i don't know what would have happened if it hadn't like let's say daca had been announced like you know maybe even january of 2013 or december of 2013 uh 2012 um or maybe right after the court hearing date I, you know i don't know i i don't even want to think about the the um the consequences and the chain of events um so uh but my uh and my two older sisters by that point had faithfully and legally gotten married um and my so they were able to get out of the the um the deportation process but uh for me my case was administratively closed um and you know 
since I was getting DACA. And then for my parents, though, it was really, really the worst case, which was that they they actually got a final order of removal, um, which was, you know, because they had no other remedy, you know. Um, so that was really, really tough because starting, you know, February 2013 until whenever I decided to put them on a plane, um, they had to go through that supervision thing, but at another level, like there were officers that would visit my parents' apartment and make wow. sure everything was the way it was last week. And wow, it's, is it because assuming that they may like uh, like move to a different place or something? Yeah, or or you know, if you see a sign <laughs> of like packing and moving or. Mm -mm. So so it was really really these are. Wow. These are these are parts of DHS and of our government. Really, we don't talk about, and these are things you don't hear about really as much uh, in detail um, online or in written media or or in our documentaries or anything really. You know, um, uh, yeah. Speaking of like uh, mental uh, trauma too right like i think that that could be one specific incident maybe short period of time but it it stays in you right and not just for themselves but uh your entire family yep yeah i agree i think um yeah i, I i've always been one of those people who have who has avoided like any kind of you know, uh, mental health and, you know, any words like trauma or I'm always like, no, we can be strong enough. We must be strong enough. We must have, you know, a really strong mindset, a really strong heart and really keep, you know, the goals in mind and spiritually speaking, just be grateful and, you know, ignore our um, pain and fears. Right um and overcome them and be strong um but over time i learned that it's not that easy and you have to let yourself deal with that trauma and understand that it was trauma and it was extremely difficult to the point where you have no words to talk about it and you have no um ways in which you can you know make yourself all of a sudden feel more comfortable you just can't because you know, the way um, your life was at that time um, certainly was extraordinarily um, overwhelming. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was really tough. Um, you know, watching my parents kind of try to keep it together and try to, you know, continue to work hard and do everything that I wanted us to do, literally everything and more. Um, so much so that, you know, they were given uh, prosecutorial discretion, essentially, which is, which is a term, you know, internally DHS uses in order to prioritize who gets deported. So if you mm -hmm. are doing bad things and dealing drugs or trafficking, I mean, that's higher priority versus if you're just a sweet, regular American family trying to live the American life and work hard and stay here for your children. Uh, which is what my parents were trying to do. Um, if it was up to them, they would go back to Pakistan in a heartbeat. That's their homeland. That's where 
I mean, my mom has a lot of her family here, so, you know, she would have a difficult time. But, you know, my dad, I mean, they, they both essentially, you know, if they had the choice, they would live there, they would live here, they would maybe mostly live there. I don't know. Um, but it's because of us that they stayed. And so, um, and my dad was working, you know, 12 hours a day, like literally seven days a week, just nonstop. Um, and it was really hard because he went from being a corporate executive within La Plaza, worked there for decades, and then he went to basically the service industry and didn't really know much about any of that, but he did what he could to provide for us. Um, you know, in all this time, we're we going to school. We're trying to trying to do well, and and you know, I was involved with obviously tennis, which I've played since um, I was like thirteen. Um, you know, singing and piano. Obviously, you can see that uh, those things are still part of my life. But um, when you're pursuing your passions that America has uh, shown you exist within you. And all of a sudden, you know, every step of the way, there there are major obstacles. You can't go on that tournament because it's too far. You can't be on a bus ride that far. Uh, you can't go to San Antonio because, you know, for this thing, for this festival where you got to do this. I mean, you, you can't do a lot of things because as undocumented parents, you know, they're very afraid of what could happen. What if you get stopped? Um, you know, what if people start asking you, you know, your, your, about your status and things. Um, and uh, it was really tough to try to get my, my parents to understand, like, hey, it'll be okay. Like, I think it'll be fine. So I still went out and did a bunch of things. But um, every time, you know, it was like, you know, you're just a teenager. And not only are you living the American teenage life and studying really, really hard and trying to get the best scores, you can go to a top school for college. And, you know, I mean, just all these things, all this stuff is going on in your life. You have another layer that's like even even crazier, which is what if somebody knows? So you don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. You don't tell anyone. Um, and you just hope that nobody finds out. Um, so yeah, that was that was most of my childhood, most of growing up. You know, um, I wonder how you um, navigate all this uh, immigration status um, along with um, what's happening with your parent, and while you're dealing with that, you excel in academia and extracurricular activities and. I wonder immigration status push you even more or discourage you um, in certain aspect of your life. Uh, I think that speaking for myself, I think for me, my immigration status motivated me to to excel in my academia, to do extracurricular activities. Um, my mind mindset when I was in college was like, okay, if I do A, B, and C, maybe I'm quote unquote deserve to be here. So mm -hmm. I tried to prove myself that quote unquote I'm American. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like my justification is kind of like a survival yeah. mode. And I'm curious to know that was kind of 
like align with your thought or something else but how do you like keep motivate yourself uh, do all the things that you have accomplished yeah i think that's a brilliant question about whether you know this led me to a certain path of like this uphill battle and i can win this battle or whether it was the other way around like hey i shouldn't really even try hard because it's not gonna go anywhere um yeah that's a that's a really really good question and i think um it's really important to reflect on that for a lot of us um and frankly uh you know i didn't spend enough time uh, reflecting on that now looking back i think it's very true i feel like very similar to your case where um you know i think there's a quote out there that says like adversity makes you excel and do things you you wouldn't otherwise you know um have the longing um and motivation to do right um and i think adversity really plays a huge role in our lives as we struggle uh and move along this journey um and i think for me it was really definitely that like i just constantly felt like okay you know i know this is an obstacle but i'm going to keep going and also it's just the way that we were brought up um you know back in pakistan i went to a you know british uh catholic um english school and you know learned to to speak english when i learned to speak and uh you know i uh education there my dad put us in a good school and we we uh you know were a few levels ahead in terms of you know math and science and things like that um and reading and all of that and so in terms of school you know i think i've always been a nerd and i i love that and you know i don't you know i'm proud of that and um so that drive was just probably there since we were children um you know since we were raised in pakistan and i remember being being uh, a child there and on our way to school every morning i'd see young children who are you know poor emaciated like literally unable to move their their goal for the day is to survive get you know beg so that they can get some food and bring some food back to their parents maybe sell some things i mean that's their reality and these are just children and it's very very unfortunate and i think it's really important for us to reflect on the status and um lives of people and young people all over the world in you know developing countries and in nations that are not america really i mean they have it really really bad um and so that just always gave me perspective like hey you know um i was there but instead of trying to survive for the day i was on this ride to this top school and getting the best education getting great food and everything was taken care of and then when i'm here yes it was really 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 difficult not knowing where we're going not knowing where we're living i mean all those things um but at the same time like i had really great teachers had good friends um i loved school i loved being able to do all these different things that i never had the chance to do before um and i knew i just need to keep going and there was no reason to back down no reason to slow down and it wasn't even like i need to prove myself to to america i i knew america proved itself to me as i was growing up here and i knew that there were ways to give back and i saw problems here you know where i grew up in texas i saw you know during a uh, hurricane katrina i remember 
um, being in like middle school, elementary school and and young kids coming from Louisiana so that they could go to school in Texas because their homes vanished, you know? Um, and I just recall all of that and saw young people, young kids like me struggle at home uh, with poverty or with um, with family issues or, or whatever. And it really put things in perspective for me. And I just knew that, you know, I need to keep going. Um, and there was going to be a way and a chance for me to, to give back. Great. Now I want to ask uh, the Texas. I think you 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 have so much proud and pride in, in living in Texas. And I'm curious to know what is it like uh, to live in Texas or was living in Texas. Now you're in the Bay Area. Um, you know assumption that I have in the state of Texas. I still haven't had a chance to visit Texas yet, but you know, this political um, around this anti-immigrant state um, and a very negative rhetoric and some of the anti-immigration legislation. And and so I wonder if that assumption is true. And, and um, now that you live in California, what are some similarities and differences um, in both uh, living in the state of California and, and Texas? Oh man, that, that's another podcast on its own <laughs> <laughs> because it is a huge topic and it's hugely relevant to this day mm -hmm. and um, to where we are now in both America's journey and also in the immigration journey. And I really think we got to delve into that more, but um, in order yeah. to briefly try to answer your question, I think you know, Texas, and by the way, yeah, what like what? Uh, I'm also curious to know why your parent like decided to move to Texas as well too. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I I probably should have mentioned that early on, but um, basically, my grandparents came because my aunt, uh, and uncle and her husband, um, they were already in Fort Worth and they had sponsored my grandparents, so they came over and my mom's. So it was a lot. It was family migration family immigration uh, for that side of my uh, family um and you know they've chosen that area and they've been there and there's a really big pakistani community in fort worth that's my hometown and always will be um i go there all the time and i, I still have you know my parents uh live there and that's still another home for me um and yeah so um uh, so that's a city actually in its own that's had a really interesting and amazing journey over the course of the last, you know, 50 or 60 years. Um, it's right next to Dallas, but, you know, along with Fort Worth and Dallas, they make up the, the Metroplex called Dallas-Fort Worth. And um, it's a huge area. There's a lot of opportunities for suburban living. Um, there's a lot going on there. Um, and that's one of the biggest uh, metroplexes in the country and um, really close to two and a half, three hours away from Austin, um, four hours away from Houston. Um, so that part of Texas has been growing for a long time. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm really proud of that heritage. But then it wasn't until I moved to West Texas, the Panhandle, the, uh, the High Plains. And if you look at American geography, 
the High Plains, it's called um, the Texas Panhandle in Lubbock, Texas. That's really where I learned, you know, um, you know, about Texas, really, I, in Fort Worth, but then also in West Texas, I call that a, as my other home as well, because all of my, um, you know, adult life, I lived there because I moved there for college and I would go back and forth. It's four and a half hour drive between the two. But, you know, Lubbock is really where, you know, I grew as an individual, as a young adult, um, as a college student and then a graduate student, et cetera, and then as an instructor and things like that. So I really, you know, I guess when you're becoming an adult from like 18 onwards, like that part of your life was very formative and, you know, you remember that very differently than when you were like 12 to 18, right? Um, that you would still call perhaps childhood, youth, teenage years, etc. But um, so yeah, so I, I absolutely love Texas. The people of Texas are amazing. Um, and they actually overall are really welcoming and really kind and good people. Um, many of them who you might think have these kinds of perhaps racist behaviors or thinking or um, uh, actions maybe that they take or the way that they might present themselves online. Um, it's, it's really tough to say how many of them uh, are really horrible people because, you know, many of them, uh, for example, the older generation, especially in rural areas, um, just like the rest of the South, I mean, many of them haven't really been in contact with a whole lot of folks like me so um, or you. And so I think it's really important for us to not preach to the choir here in you know, California, San Francisco, LA or whatever, and, or New York City, but preach or you know, teach, I guess, uh, to folks in places like West Texas, uh, in places like Georgia, in places like you know, Louisiana or whatever, right? Because that's where they need literally like, you know, the kinds of storytelling, the kinds of fact sharing, the kinds of like, you know, you got to touch them, not just with your heart, but also maybe some data and then more heart and more stories and just personal connection and just being warm. Um, and that's what I learned is that, you know, many of my mentors are conservatives, Republicans, etc. This is before Trump time because of where I grew up um, and uh, in, in West Texas. And I respect them. Um, I know they respect and love me and have helped me so much. Um, I'm a proud Red Raider. Uh, I, you know, I'm really proud of where I come from. And I just think that we need to um, continue to build that warmth and those connections and that communication flow versus not versus like ostracizing these people and saying you are just racist you're going to keep believing what you're going to keep believing and you're never going to change and you're never going to see the other side some people yes will probably stay that way but there's a large majority that really um are open to listening if you if you um talk to them in a certain way Right. And if you build a connection with them in a different way. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, all the times that I've been in, in D.C., whether it was for immigration or higher ed education, um, you know, advocacy or just 
you know, entrepreneurship or really any of the things that have led me to our nation's capital. I've always, you know, there you see like a big melting pot, like liberals, conservatives, every, every kind of person, right? Um, and I've learned that, uh, you know, you just, when it comes to speaking to members of Congress, for example, who are Republicans or conservatives, there's a different angle you might need to take, right? You, you can't just like have it taped on your forehead, I'm a DACA recipient, please help me. You know, like you have to find a way to connect with them just like you would any other human being that's different from you. Um, and I think that's another one of my passions, I guess, is to find a way to talk across the aisles um, and, and really get both sides to listen to each other. Um, I think that's really tough, obviously, and I'm no expert, and um, so I don't know all the solutions, but I know there are ways to connect with folks from each side. Um, in terms of like the way that uh, Texas, the demographics are changing rapidly over time, as you can see from the data. Um, it's more and more of a melting pot. Houston, one of the most diverse cities in the country you can get any type of food there that you want really um you know austin is is like that blueberry in a bowl of red tomato soup that rick perry says um and uh you know fort worth i mean there's a lot of great cities there's there's a lot of great things going on west of i-35 as well like in lubbock and in el paso where beto o'rourke is from and he's a great friend and mentor of mine and i wish him very best of luck as he uh, runs for governor. And, uh, you know, so I think there's change coming in Texas. And I, I really, I really think that we're off to a good start. I just, you know, I don't want to like, you know, say that the Texas um, heart and the, the Texas hospitality um, is, you know, against like immigrants or against change, good change. Um, I, I believe that those things can all run in parallel. And I think that um, we really have to do a better job of um, showcasing that, you know, Texans aren't that bad. And I feel like to your point about the differences between Texas and California, yeah, when we, you know, moved here, I mean, you definitely see the huge changes. I mean, you know, you see the way people obviously vote, think, um, uh, there's a lot of good and bad to both places, right? And so, um, so yeah, uh, like I said, we could uh, do a whole podcast on on Texas versus California. Um, and yeah, I feel like I feel like you know, I think I could feel your energy and passion about the state of Texas, and I think you did uh, convince me to go to uh, Texas. I know, uh, I've been trying so. to convince you for so long. I'm, yeah. Maybe this year. Yeah, we're just gonna get in the car and we can make that drive. I think we, we've done that drive multiple <laughs> times and it's a great drive and you get to see the beautiful American Southwest as you come from Texas all the way to West, um, to California, it's, it's beautiful. It really makes you appreciate the beauty of our country and I'm really grateful um, to have made that journey. Yes, I think you convinced me, and I will uh, take a word on it. And uh, we should definitely have another podcast around just uh, Texas itself. Um, I think um, I want to slowly wrap it up, but I do want to uh, briefly talk about some documented population from uh, Pakistan. 
Uh, I think a lot of people do not know about this, but there's like a large undocumented population from Pakistan. And um, it's actually one of the top uh, five uh, undocumented populations among uh, Asian populations. And as you kind of did a lot of activism around immigration issues, have you ever encountered, um, you know, undocumented population um, from Pakistan? And if so, um, you know, what was your experience like? And uh, based on even my personal experience, um, I, I, I met a lot of Asian undocumented people, but um, surprisingly uh, very few um, Pakistanis. And, and I'm curious to know like your perspective on that. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, you know, Pakistani Americans, um, are in large quantities all over the country, right? Um, a lot of them in the medical industry, a lot of them, you know, go to really great med schools in Pakistan, come here to do their fellowships and then pursue medicine. So a lot of physicians you'll find are Pakistanis. Um, but obviously they, you know, they have the, their work status and whatnot or green cards, et cetera. So, Many of them you might not find um, immediately if they're undocumented, uh, especially, I mean, given my experience, I can imagine it was just very same for many other Pakistani families. I think I knew, I didn't know this, but I think I knew of like a couple of Pakistani um, community members who, you know, uh, might have been undocumented. But again, we just don't talk about it. Um, it's mm. not something that you're really, really proud of. In fact, you're afraid of that and you're maybe even ashamed of that. And so you don't want to talk about it uh, and you're very careful. Um, and so uh, growing up, I didn't really even think this was possible. But um, after I shared my story via my TEDx talk um, back in 2013, and it, it just kind of blew up my world really, that was at Texas Tech. And a couple of my mentors had encouraged me to to go on that stage and do that. And so um, after that, um, I got messages from literally all over the world, many, you know, Pakistani moms, um, folks from everywhere saying, hey, like, thank you for sharing. And, you know, you know, we, we showed your video to our kids, you know, things like that. Uh, and of course, bad ones too, right? Like there's always gonna be, you know, those right. people who just literally don't get it, um, which, you know, Yes, that's how it goes. But um, so after that, I actually met a good friend of mine, Annie, who uh, works worked for Forward, now works for CZI, who reached out and said, "Hey, like I'm Pakistani too, and you know, here's my story." And um, and we connected, and then she was, you know, she's really strong in this movement. She's been doing this work for a long, long time, many years, and um, and she would connect me with different resources and say, "Here." you know, go be part of the WIAPI uh, folks or USCIS is having a round table or whatever, like, you know, and then I really kind of like, you know, found myself becoming more and more involved with the um, immigration movement via organizations like Forward and, you know, um, United We Dream and, you know, uh, Define American and all these different groups, Immigrants Rising. Um, NACASEC, which was, you know, perhaps my favorite, we might need to have another podcast just for NACASEC. Um, yes. um, but so through that journey, I did meet, um, you know, obviously that friend and then like a couple of other 
um, uh, Pakistani undocumented Americans, uh, especially like, for example, like I was in DC and at, you know, giving a talk or being part of something, you know, I had people come up to me. Um, they weren't necessarily undocumented, but they were Pakistani and they would say like, hey, like, we didn't think somebody like you existed, but thanks for coming forward, you know, and, you know, let us know how we can help. So I agree. I think that population is pretty small in terms of those who are out there, but um, in terms of, you know, them being comfortable sharing their story, but they're out there. And um, I, I really, it's one of my passions to, you know, try to encourage, you don't necessarily need to come out like blasting your story, but, um, but if you can at least share with, you know, maybe even in confidence with movement building organizations or people like us, for example, um, that really helps us help them, right? Like we can say like, here, here's a resource for you are here. Don't feel this way because, you know, don't feel bad that you feel this way. We went through this and here's how we dealt with it. You know, so to really build that community, I think it's really important to keep that channel of communication going. And that's why I, I encourage folks to, you know, don't think of this as something that you should be ashamed about or, or feel guilty about. We did nothing wrong, right? Um, you're here to pursue the American dream, just like everyone else. This is the land that belongs to Native Americans and tribal people. Um, it's not even America's land, really, if you think about it. So um, everyone here is an immigrant, whether you came, uh, you know, your grandparents came on Ellis Island or or uh, you came, you know, a few decades ago, whatever. Um, so there's ways to connect. And I, I really hope that, that um, you know, feeling of like, grief or guilt or you know shamefulness I, I really hope we can go away from that um and i know that we find that a lot in the api community uh so i really hope that we can kind of um help uh you know improve that and help heal that yes final question yeah uh, if you were to go back and tell your younger self a uh, 19 year old Saba, what would you say and or what would you tell, you know, someone who is out there um, undocumented, Pakistani undocumented, who may be 19 year old, who might be dealing with some similar situation that you encountered in the past, what would you say um, to them? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I think I would say, first of all, to, to believe in the goodness around you and to really believe in yourself as well and those who love you um, and know that it's going, going to be okay. Um, I think that when you're in the midst of all these emotions and all of this trauma, this overwhelming feeling of being undocumented or whatever else may be happening in your life besides that, um, you immediately, you know, begin to drown under that. And it's really important to know that it's going to be okay. You will survive this. You have a community around you. Um, if you can be open to reaching out for help because you're not alone and you never were, you never will be. So find a way to connect with someone else um, who you can talk to. Um, I think just talking through this is a major part of healing. And I really encourage people to do that. And I think, 
you know, if I could go back in time, I'd tell myself that as well. I'd say like, hey, it's going to be okay. And hey, it's okay to seek help. Um, it's okay to seek, you know, help in many areas, whether it's like, you know, and I did that a lot. But one of the things that I didn't do enough of was, you know, maybe seeking mental health help or just having enough time to reflect, you know, and pray and meditate and really, you know, calm ourselves down. I, I didn't really do that as, as well. Um, you know, one of the things that comes with being high energy and crazy, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I think it's really important to, to just know that it's going to be okay and there's a community around you. Great. With that, well, thanks again, Saba. I really appreciate you for coming on uh, the podcast. Um, and you know, I really admire you in so many different aspects. And um, I'm really grateful that uh, we're friends and um, I hope yeah. we continue to um, support each other and help our uh, uh, immigrant communities. Yeah, and I, one last thing I wanted to uh, commend you as well for taking this step in creating this beautiful journey. And I think it's going to help a lot of people. Um, and I think it's really, really important um, because it's filling a gap in our community right now. And so I'm really excited to uh, to see everything that immigrations will, um, will do. So thank you for your efforts. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Until then, uh, we'll we'll have another podcast. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Saba. Appreciate you. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Bye.